we're dealing with church history right now. This is the second class of the new year. In the second class, we've looked at church history. Church history then to now. This class is on First Clement. There is an epistle from the Greek word epistolo, which is a, a, epistolos, which is a, a letter. So this is a letter that was written that we call First Clement. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So with that, the letter itself was written, we think pretty clearly, scholars are pretty sure, it's around 95, maybe 96 A.D. Now to put that into a time frame for those who are fluent with their New Testament, the New Testament was, most of the books were written by then, but not all of them. That is the time frame when John wrote the last of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. That is the time frame for Revelation. That is the time frame for the epistles of John. And so it lets you kind of feel what's going on. Church history teaches that the Apostle John was still alive and living in Ephesus, at Patmos and Ephesus. Uh, he got exiled for a while to Patmos, an island off the coast of Turkey and off the coast of Ephesus. You can see Ephesus from the island, not very well, but you can see it. And so that's the time frame of this letter. I want to talk about the letter. We'll put it up there, and I want to do it in three different ways. First, I want to talk about who Clement is. And then second, why was the letter written? And then third, what does the letter say? So if we can get those three things done, you will know and, and be versed with a very important part of first century Christian faith. First century. This is a first to second generation Christian faith issue and problem that was being dealt with, and that's what we'll look at together. So, who was Clement? Clement was the or a, depending upon how you translate some scriptures, bishop of Rome. The Roman church had bishops, and if you read a translation of 1 Clement, generally, Actually, he's not identified in First Clement, the author. But if you go to the other writings that identify him, we'll talk to him about them later, Irenaeus, for example, Eusebius. If you go to those, they will call him the bishop or a bishop of Rome. Now, here's what we need to talk about to understand this and put it into context. Jesus has his 12 apostles. Judas gets uh, 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 summarily dismissed. The place for Judas is taken. The apostles, and Paul is added as an apostle, but still the Bible speaks as if there are 12. The apostles are the voice of Jesus. And they follow the command of Jesus to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And church history teaches that the apostles did all go out from Jerusalem and preach the gospel as commanded, save for James, who was martyred early. The book of Acts in the New Testament also teaches that the apostles were evangelizing, but the book of Acts focuses mostly 
absent a little bit of Peter, mostly on Paul's evangelism because Luke, who wrote Acts, went with Paul. So here's the problem. When Jesus first left, the earliest church thought that Jesus was coming back any day now. Because Jesus always said, I'm coming back any day now. Everybody should be prepared. Jesus could come before we finish this class. And we should live as an expectant church. In fact, the churches in early history were all built facing east. Because they understood the Lord was returning from the east. Matthew 24, Jesus said, as lightning flashes from the east, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. And they didn't understand that geographically the thunderstorms just generally came from the east. And so Jesus is saying, I'm as unexpected as the lightning. The early church was thinking that means he's coming from the east. They had a flat earth view. And so the early churches built their buildings where the congregation faced east. Because you wanted to show even in worship, you are an expectant church looking for the returning Messiah. So the earliest church thought Jesus was returning almost any minute. In fact, that seems to be why uh, after Pentecost, uh, the, the, the earliest believers sold everything they had. They used it for the common good. Because they figured it was an any day now thing. They hadn't registered that Jesus had actually said, go into all the earth and preach the gospel. That there would be more to it. But gradually the church came to that understanding. And as the church, and we see it in the New Testament, as the church gradually came under the understanding, the apostles began to die off. John being the last one. So as the apostles began to die off, the immediate problem and question for the church is, who's in charge? Who's running this show? To whom are we accountable? And who shall God hold responsible? Now the apostles were aware of this. It didn't just happen one day. That the final apostle dies and the church gets together for a big convention trying to figure out what to do. The groundwork for this had been laid in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And we read about that in the text of the Bible itself. So the Bible itself answers that question for the next generation, who's in charge? And the Bible itself sets it out. So I want us to look first at the biblical concept and then we'll see how it begins to unfold. Um, oops, let's go back for a moment. So if we look at the biblical concept, Paul says, I'm appointing elders in all of these different churches where I go. And so we have that elders being appointed in these different churches. Look at Acts 14, 23. Acts 14, 23 is an excellent example of this. Uh, we can make that bigger. Oh, gone. 
All right, Acts 14, 23. Okay, is that in focus for you? Well, you just need glasses. There we go. Acts 14, 23. And when they, and this is Paul and others, had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. So they appointed elders. Now, let's take this back just a little bit so that we've got an ability to write on the side. Is that still big enough for you all to see by and large? Yes, on the front row, that's good. All right, so elders. Now, the Greek word for elders is presbuteros. And we would write that, pres, you can do the Y as a, I mean, the U as a U or a Y. Whoops. Guess what word we get from elder? Presbyterian. See, so the Presbyterians are going to tell you, hey, we got early church structure here. Well, what they do is they have the presbuteros is the Greek word for elder. So what Paul's saying here is he appointed elders, presbuteros, in each church. Now, what does that word mean in the Greek? It means somebody who's older than the other folks. In the English, we could say elder, because that's what it means. It's people who are elderly. You know, Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Look what he says. 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1. Let's make that a little bigger. That's way too big. All right, I'm having a little trouble with this machine. We're going to get some WD-40 on this little puppy. Don't know what it'll do, but sure can't hurt. There we go. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So an overseer must be above reproach. Now, an overseer is a different Greek word than an elder. And yet in the New Testament, they're used interchangeably. I've given you the Acts passage where in Acts, uh, 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 Paul calls the elders, Acts 20, Paul calls the elders from Ephesus and he meets with them and says, you are the overseers. So, so it's, the words are used interchangeably because this is not presbuteros. This word for overseer, let's see if we can make room for it. In the, in the Greek, I have to do it a little bit bigger. This word overseer in the Greek is episkopos. which we would write, as smooth breathing, we would write it as episkopos. And what word do we get from that? Yeah, this is where the Episcopalians come from. No, the title that they use. This word overseer is a word that later in the church gets translated as bishop. So when we talk about Clement being the a bishop of the Roman church, 
Clement, in New Testament speak, is an elder. He's an overseer in the church at Rome. That is not the same as a deacon, by the way. You'll see in this Timothy passage, just a little bit below, after Paul talks about what it means to be an elder, or what it takes to be an elder, the qualifications for elders, then he talks about deacons and he says, deacons likewise must be. Because deacons, diakonos in the Greek, a servant, the deacons are someone who serve. It's different than the elder or the presbyteros, the episkopos, who has the oversight. You with me? Okay, so now if we go back to the PowerPoint. So next generation, who's in charge? The answer is, of course, God, of course, Jesus. But the apostles had set up elderships. They had put elders in the churches. The churches also had deacons. And so there is an apostolic structure that is set up within these congregations. As the apostles die, though, there's another element that's in play. And we see it in play from the earliest churches, even within the New Testament itself. And that is, you can have these various congregations of one universal church, but there are multiple teachers who seem to be some itinerant teachers. Apollos moves from church to church to church. Priscilla and Aquila move from Rome. We have them in Corinth. We have them in Ephesus. Paul, of course, moving church to church to church. So the churches were conversant with the idea, the congregations, that within the church universal, there were various teachers. And the church had an inner connection of sorts. Now, over time, things begin to get more structured. And we'll see this unfold in the coming weeks. But what happens is the congregations grow bigger and bigger and more numerous and more numerous. And eventually, to keep a united church, there begins to add more structure to it than existed in the New Testament within the framework of just a handful of congregations. And that's how we're going to see church hierarchy start to build. But the initial New Testament model is still reflected within the writing of Clement in 95 AD. You have churches that have elders or overseers or bishops, whatever you choose to call them. And there is an interconnectedness of the churches even within the teaching model. And so that's what we've got here. Now, one church, many teachers. Clement is the bishop at Rome. He's called the Episcopos. Bishop, overseer, elder. All of those terms are interchangeable at that point in time. So you've got those as well. Um, and, and you can translate them however you want. Because that's what they are. Those are the biblical terms. Okay, now, Irenaeus writes in the third generation. And I call him the third generation. Irenaeus was born probably around 120 A.D. 
So figure 25 years after this epistle that we're studying today, 25 years after the Gospel of John. Irenaeus did not know John, but he knew someone who knew John. So he's the third generation. If the apostles are the first, you've got a second generation, which probably includes Clement. By the way, some scholars think that the Clement we're talking about is the same Clement that Paul referenced from Rome in the Philippian letter when he wrote, when Paul wrote from Rome to the Philippian church and Paul said, Clement, my co-worker, sends his greetings. So you've got uh, the first generation of the apostles. The second generation would be people like Clement, Polycarp. The third generation are people like Irenaeus. So Irenaeus said this in, uh, uh, in, in a book that he wrote in the 100s. Here we go. This man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone in this, for there were still many remaining who had received instructions from the apostles. Now, Irenaeus is saying in reference to Clement of Rome that that the guy actually learned from the apostles themselves. And it's not surprising, but when we read this letter and we talk about Clement, we need to understand we are truly in a second generation that had contact with the first generation. I told you last week, if you were here, that we can very easily do every link in the chain from the New Test, from Jesus, through his New Testament church, through the church in history to today. There's not a missing link. Clement is a second generation who had been conversant with the apostles. You could, he could still hear their preaching in his ears. He could still see their traditions before his eyes. And he wasn't the only one. So we're not relying upon, gee, this one guy. There were many. So within the framework of that, that's who Clement was. Now the question becomes, why is he writing a letter? And I'll tell you something. He's writing to the church at Corinth. So you've got an elder in the Roman church writing to the church in Corinth. Why? Well, Rome and Corinth, we're not that far apart. We'll put the map back up here. We've got Rome circled. Here's Corinth over here. Wasn't a long journey, wasn't a hard journey. Could be easily done as long as the season was right for a boat. And so... Uh, uh, Corinth was regularly visited. It was one of the, the most, most uh, industrious and populated seaports in the Middle Eastern world. So you've got an easy access, but why is Clement writing to the Romans? Well, let's go back to Irenaeus, because Irenaeus tells us. Here's what Irenaeus says, third generation, why? Uh, maybe here's what Irenaeus says. Boom. No, that's not what Irenaeus says. Okay. It's not appearing. Oh, yes, it is appearing there. Good. Irenaeus, in the time of this Clement, no small dissension having occurred among the brethren at Corinth. No small dissension means there's a big fight. 
the church in Rome dispatched a most powerful letter to the Corinthians, exhorting them to peace, renewing their faith, and declaring the tradition which it had lately received from the apostles. In other words, Irenaeus says, there is a fight going on in Corinth and we can read First Clement and readily understand there were young people who had basically overthrown the older people. They took over for the elders. Not because the elders had done anything wrong. The young people just, I don't know, maybe they thought, it's our time. We want new worship. We want this different. We want that different. Gee, it would be more convenient if they would die, but they haven't died, so we'll just take over. They may be doddering, and it will be, it will have that young energy. And so you had a youth rebellion in the Corinthian church that caused the Roman church to write this letter we call First Clement. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, First Clement, gee, is that the same as my darling Clement, Tyne? No, it, it's not, but it's really close. And so I scoured the internet to try to find what, what in common John Ford and the, his darling Clementine had in, in, in relationship with Clementine, the bishop, elder, overseer of Rome. And I found it. You can find all sorts of things on the internet. So I've found this on the internet. My darling Clementine, a redo that Phil Keggy's made as a gift to our class. In a cavern, in a canyon, excavating for a mine. Lived a miner, 49er, had his daughter, Clementine. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. You were lost and gone forever, dreadful sorry, Clementine. church that has divided with some young guys out of line came a letter to changes and it came from Clementine oh the bishop oh the bishop oh the bishop Clementine you have written up a letter fixing problems Clementine Thank you to Phil Keggy. If you remember nothing else now from this class, you are expected to remember with Clement that he wrote a letter fixing problems to a church that was divided with some young guys out of line. You got that. You passed the test. But because we've got a little more time, let's get into a little more depth about it. 
So why did he write it? He wrote it because the church had some problems. And here's the important thing I'd like to do now is look at what was in this letter. Because there are some very important things for us in this letter. Now, let me tell you what I am not delving into. Within the world of church historical scholarship, this letter is used by some to argue for the apostolic succession that is seen most apparently within the Catholic Church and the Greek Church. And, and, and there are arguments that can be made from this letter for that. There are arguments that can be made for this letter against that. I don't want to get into that argument because it doesn't bear fruit for us in this class Uh, If you want to get into it, you can read it and all the rest of this. Second thing I'm not getting into. Some people use this letter to argue for the primacy, as in primary, as in supremacy, the primacy of the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Church, with the idea that the Bishop of Rome, who in many later generations will be called the Pope of Rome, The bishop of Rome is deemed by some to be asserting Roman authority over the Corinthian church by writing this letter. However, another argument is made by scholars from the other perspective that say, actually, the letter itself never says Do this because we are your authority. In fact, the letter says, do this because it's right before God. And so some use this letter to say, hey, the Roman church is writing to the Corinthians like the Roman church is the boss. And other people say, no, this is just like the New Testament concept of one church and the church looking out for each other. We will in a couple of weeks look at letters just 15 years later from Ignatius, who's not from Rome, but is writing to seven different churches to talk to them about things they need to do as well. And that's just the approach. So I'm not getting into that fuss from either of those sides. Uh, It's not what the letter itself is about. I want to deal with what the letter itself is about not how the letter is used to justify one position or another position in the succeeding centuries of discussions on church polity. You with me? So if if this is not going to be Catholic bashing or Catholic boosting, I just want to talk about the letter. First Clement. And the letter itself has got so many things that it's really fascinating. And in the 25 minutes I have left, we won't even remotely get through some of the stuff I'd like to tell you about the letter. Now, let's go back. This letter was written to the Corinthian church, right? And do you remember the year? 95 AD. All right, you ever seen the before and after stuff? There was in Friday's Chronicle on the internet a before and after thing about, it was a thing about stars you thought were dead that aren't dead yet. 
So to have these old pictures of them and these new pictures of them. And I went through and I looked at him. Abe Vigoda. He's not dead yet. I know what you're thinking. He died in Godfather 1. No. Turns out he didn't. That was just his character. Abe Vigoda from Taxi. So here he is in 1974. Here he is 41 years later. 40 years later. Could you tell it's the same guy? Yeah, 40 years isn't all that bad. It is to you young people. But to us, 40 years is like, I mean, okay, admittedly, I was in high school 40 years ago. But even still, I remember myself in high school. Oh, it was Barney Miller? It wasn't Taxi. What did I say, Taxi? Okay, well, I never watched either one of those shows. But anyway, (laughs) I remember it like it was yesterday. No, um, so, so here you've got a good example for us to just put into time frame 40 years. And the reason I say that is, have you ever read any letters that were written to the Corinthian church? Yes. Which letters have you read? Those by Paul that were written a little over 40 years before this one. So if you're thinking in terms of how long ago was it, You can read this letter to the Corinthian church and it's really kind of cool to see how they got their act together or failed to after the writings of Paul. And so I want us to look at it together and I want us to look at it first from an informational perspective. 95 AD, Old Testament's done. May not... uh, 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 Yes, let's just say it's done, okay? New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written. Acts, written. Paul's epistles, written. Hebrews, written. I believe Peter, First and Second Peter, written. I believe that, that Jude is written. And I believe Revelation, the Gospel of John, and the Epistles of John are being written about this time. Now, when these are written, they were never written with the idea of, here, everybody has a loose-leaf Bible, and when the new book comes out that's going in, it's three-hole-punched, it gets emailed out, for everybody, or mailed out, FedExed out for everybody to get so they can insert it into their loose leaf Bible until the Bible's complete. We'll do classes on how the Bible was put together, but that's not it. For right now, our purpose is, I can just say the following. It looks like some were gathering the Gospels. It looks, most scholars readily agree, and it makes a whole lot of sense, Quickly, the epistles of Paul were gathered together, the letters of Paul. And these have been copied and recopied and recopied for churches to use all over. But if the letter was written to the church at Philippi, maybe Paul wrote it from Rome. So there's a copy of it in Rome, a copy in Philippi. It gets copied and copied. But these things aren't immediately put out throughout the Mediterranean world. It takes time. And it takes also a process to be verified. They didn't have the internet 
but they were just as savvy as we should be about the internet. You can't believe everything that comes in, in, in the internet. And the church was very savvy to verify writings. But now you've got this writing in 95, before the Gospel of John's finished. And what is the most amazing thing to me when I read this book, or this letter, is Clement's use of Scripture. 95 AD. He's already, uh, first of all, the Old Testament, man, he knows the Old Testament better than, better than I do. And I, I don't mean like, hey, look at me. I mean, maybe I'm dense. But I at least had to translate a bunch of that stuff for my degree. I mean, I've been teaching it. And he knows it cold. He doesn't have these massive, wonderful concordances. He doesn't have these libraries like we've got. He doesn't have these electronic programs that can find stuff. He didn't even have Google. And he's quoting the Old Testament. I'd say he's quoting it on every page, but I'd be selling him short. I've got, uh, let me give you one example. I just, I'm just going to throw out one example here. This is chapter 3 of 1 Clement. Let's go and see if I can get it up here on the screen. Chapter 3. All glory and enlargement was given to you. And that which was written was fulfilled. My beloved ate and ate and drank, and he was enlarged and waxed fat and kicked. That's Deuteronomy 32.15. Did any of you have that memorized? He just quotes Deuteronomy 32.15. Now, I've got Kirsip Lake's translation here, which is an old translation. It's almost 100 years old. And so he speaks uh, 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 a little bit differently. Here's the way we would translate Deuteronomy 32.15 in the English Standard Version. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There. See, I even had to say that. Deuteronomy 32.15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. That's what Clement says the Corinthians did. He says, you got these letters from Paul. You got the blessed teachings of the apostles. The Corinthian church had Paul there. They had Peter there. They had Apollos there. They had Aquila there. They had Priscilla there. They, they had the marvelous teaching. And they soaked it all in. And they grew fat and large and rebelled against the Lord. That's what he... And Clement's quoting Deuteronomy. Just keep looking. From this arose jealousy and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and disorder, war and captivity. Thus, the worthless rose up against those who were in honor. That's a quotation out of Isaiah, whoops, Isaiah 3, 5. I can't quite get it all on the screen. Isaiah 3, 5. He just throws it in there. The foolish against the prudent, the young against the old. That's still out of that Isaiah 3, 5. For this cause, righteousness and peace are far removed. 
That's Isaiah 59, 14. Do you see? And it's this on every page. You don't get it out of Kirsip Lake's translation. But you can from others or whatever. I mean, every line is just like a quote from the Bible, a quote from the Bible, a quote from the Bible. And he does it not only with the Old Testament. He does it with what we would call the New Testament. So if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, in addition to the Old Testament, here's a brief selection. And I've given you even more in your your handout, but I mean, I've given you a thumbnail. The Gospels. Clement says, show mercy that you may receive mercy. Forgive that you may be forgiven. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew. The merciful shall receive mercy. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And and it's this way over and over and over. You've got the Gospel of Mark used. You've got the Gospel of Matthew used. And he interlaces these scriptures in with his dialogue. Just, I mean, he doesn't say Matthew 5, 7. Because the chapters and the verses were never put in won't be put in for over a thousand years. But he has no trouble just weaving back and forth. Look at what he does with the book of Acts. First Clement 2.1, more glad to give than to receive. Acts 20.35, more blessed to give than to receive. And when you're reading it in the Greek, it's so clear he's using it. And he's got it. 95, don't ever let anybody tell you the Bible was put together. By, don't, all those Bart Ehrman books and all those books by, you know, people who are skeptics and cynics about the integrity. The church decided the Bible in 300 A.D. Hogwash. Already Clement is using this. Look at some of the stuff from Paul. 1 Corinthians. Clement. 13.1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul, it's a, actually an Old Testament passage. Paul quotes, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord to the Corinthians. Not just in 1 Corinthians, Paul does it again in 2 Corinthians. You'll see Clement using Philippians. You'll see him using Romans. You see him using the book of Hebrews like crazy. He goes through the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's just almost word for word. He does take 12 verses out of one chapter of Isaiah and quotes them word for word. I mean, the guy uses the Bible like crazy. And it's really something we're missing if we do not see the importance of... And and, and he not only does that, let me tell you what else he does. He says specifically that the Old Testament, which is what he's calling the Bible by and large, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then the New Testament writings that we would call, he says, are the words that were from the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as the apostles were given those words by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and that's the Jesus who was given authority by God. So he says, I'm quoting, and we're quoting, and we're looking at the teachings of the apostles, because they got it from Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, who got it from God. This is the Word of God. And he's recognizing it in 95 AD. It's amazing. Okay, there's factual material in here. This is where we read about Peter being crucified. I made the mistake last week of saying Paul was crucified. Oops, my bad. 
Um, Paul was beheaded, I think. It seems to be what church history indicates. But the martyrdom of Paul is talked about in here as well. This also is where we read about Paul going to preach as far as Spain, which you can imply, uh, infer from the New Testament, but it's not clear because Acts ends before that. So we've got the apostolic teaching of things. Now, there's also in here non-factual material. There were some early churches that wanted to include First Clement in the Bible. Uh, the church decided, no, 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 it's not apostolic. It's post-apostolic. And, and, and we would look at it and say, yeah, it's really good. It's like a really good sermon, a really good sermon, a sermon worth listening to and reading and studying. It's really, really good. It's, it's a book up there as good as C.S. Lewis. But it's not without error. And what uh, 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 Charles Mickey was likened it to a preacher, not ours, who reads something on the Internet and puts it in his sermon without checking it to see if it's true. Here's a non-factual matter that dear brother Clement put in his letter. Let us consider, am I on the, uh, can we go to the Elmo please? Thank you. Let us consider the strange sign which takes place in the east near Arabia. There's a bird called the phoenix. There's only one of its kind. It lives 500 years. Then it dies. And it makes a sepulcher of frankincense and myrrh and other spices. When the time's fulfilled, it enters into it and it dies. And then a worm comes out that's nourished by the juices of the dead bird and the worm gets wings. Then when it's become strong, it takes up the sepulcher and it basically resurrects. And then uh, all of this stuff happens in Egypt. Well, now, he was wrong. Sorry, he was wrong. And, and, and the wild part is, in some ways, he was misled because he misunderstood Scripture. Um, this is just a freebie that I don't even have time to give you and I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Psalm 92, 12. Psalm 92, 12. See, I get to do this because I took that degree not just in Hebrew but in Greek as well. So it's very rare I get to use both of them in one lesson. Here you go. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. Do you know how to say palm tree in Hebrew? It's Tamar. Tamar. Do you know what the Greek word for palm tree is? Let's see if it's showing up on here. Uh, the Greek word for palm tree is Phoenix. That happens to also be, happens to also be the Greek word for the bird phoenix. So Clements just learned his Greek New Testament, I mean Greek Old Testament, instead of his Hebrew. And he's thinking he's right on this because he doesn't understand that it's actually a reference to a palm tree flourishing, not the bird, the, you know. So anyway, all right. Non-factual material. So that's some of what you get in here. But what else do you get? You get some fantastic instruction. You know, Pastor David this morning gave a marvelous sermon. 
And he had tens and sevens all over it. So after our revelation trip, that was really fun to listen to. His A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven ways to be spiritually mature. Um, it was marvelous. It was insightful. It was practical. There is a ton of that type of instruction in Clement as well. Marvelous, insightful, practical. Here's a, a great verse that I love. First uh, Clement 15.1. And I don't, uh, this is an, such an old translation. It's not the most enjoyable, but it's still pretty good. Um, I'll give you my translation in a minute. Moreover, let us cleave to those whose peacefulness is based on piety and not to those, let's see if we make that a little better, not to those whose wish for peace is hypocrisy. Here's what he's saying. Practice those who do peace, not those who simply preach it. That's a 21st century translation. Cleave to, hang on to, hang around, associate with, model, emulate, be like those who do peace. Peacefulness is based on piety. Do peace, not to those whose wish for peace is merely in their words, who speak for peace. He's got some great stuff in there. It's written in great humility. And he's got instructions to the church. So if we go back to the PowerPoint briefly, we've got in church instructions. I want to look at those with you. The church instructions. Now, here's where some of the scholars get a chance to divide up over this issue of... uh, Papal authority, bishop authority, uh, uh, you know, uh, etc. Chapter 44. Our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is cool. This is coming from someone who worked with the apostles. They knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife for the title of bishop. Now, the reason I brought this translation, which is just really not a good translation, it's not a, a modern translation, is because on the left, we've got the Greek. We've got a few people in here who read Greek. So if you'll humor me for a moment, let's take those people and let's talk about this for a moment. The title of bishop, that they would strive for the title of bishop that they would want, strive upon the onomatos tes episcopes, the name holder of an episcopos, which you all know is an overseer, right? Um, that they would strive over. It's not as much, I mean, that the way Cursip Lake has translated this He clearly is on the idea that there is a title of a bishop to the exclusion maybe of an office of bishop. But that's the debate. Our apostles knew that there would be strife for the title of bishop, or it might just mean to be a bishop, to be an elder. For this cause, therefore, since they had received perfect foreknowledge. I mean, what did the church think of the apostolic knowledge? The writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, 
the church did not consider them just to be merely inspired in some inspirational sense. They were inerrantists when it came to the holy writings of the apostles. They appointed, the apostles appointed those who have already been mentioned. These are the elders, the deacons. And afterwards added the codicil, that means added later the instruction that if they should fall asleep when they die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. The office continues. And so when an office holder dies, someone else should be put in their place. But we consider it's not just to remove from their ministry those who were appointed by them or later on by other eminent men with the consent of the whole church and who've ministered to the flock without blame. Don't remove a bishop. Don't remove an elder. Don't remove what we would call a pastor. Don't remove them if they're doing their job right. If they're doing their job with humility, if you know you, you appointed them with the consent of the church. Our pastors here, even not just David, all of our pastors here, there's a church vote. They're appointed with the consent of the church. They've ministered to the flock of Christ. If they've done it without blame, humbly, peaceably, disinterestedly, and for many years been favorable in their testimony. You don't just remove them because you're young and you want to take over. That's not the way of it. That's not the way it was set up. That's his. That's Clement's letter. That's Clement's plea. So with that, there's theology in here. And, and, and dissertations are written on the theology of Christ, the theology of prayer. I've put a little bit in there for you. Um, uh, you can read that in your lesson. We don't have time for it this morning. Now we have fruit for home. And yes, we changed the fruit to a clementine. <laughs> Three points for home before we go. <laughs> I should have put the, the hat back on him. Anyway, three points for home. First, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. Jesus never said blessed are the peace talkers. Clement was right when he said, look, you don't, don't follow the people who are peace talkers. Follow the people who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. I want that. I want that. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker at work. I want to be, I know you're saying, you're a trial lawyer. You sue people for a living. Yes, I do. But I want it to get to peaceful resolution as soon as it can. And it's a whole lot better that we do it in courts than that my people go try to beat their people up and take their money by force. This is, this is all working toward resolution. I want to be a peacemaker 
at work. I want to be a peacemaker at home. I want to be a peacemaker at church. I want that to be one of the guiding rules of the words that I say, the thoughts that I think, the things that I do. I don't want to be a hypocrite and preach peace. I want to be a a, a person of faith and move others to peace. Point for home number two. Obey your leaders and submit to them because they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Wow. We don't like that in America. We live in a 21st century um, independent... I, I mean, we live in Texas. If you're watching this on the internet, this comes from Texas. And we don't take direction from Washington. We don't take... We barely take it from Austin. We are fiercely independent, self-made. But within God's family, there are structures of authority. And we in this church are called to be submissive to our pastors. I would suggest to you, if you cannot be submissive to the pastors at this church, you're in the wrong church. Or you need to change your heart. Now, that's all well and good because David Fleming doesn't come around and tell us how to butter our toast. But how about when Pastor Brent Dyer tells us to sing as loud as we can? He said that this morning. I thought, interesting. Because I'm going to say we need to obey our pastors. He's not doing that for his good. He's doing that to lead us, to teach us. Okay. Point for home number three. All scriptures breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm telling you, Clement had so much scripture memorized, he'd make us all look like newbies to the Lord. All of us. He'd put us to shame. But... That won't be entirely true by the end of the year because you're joining me this year in committing to memory 1 John. And we're doing it in the English Standard Version. Thank you, Coach. (laughs) He reminded me I forgot to say that last week. English Standard Version. Some of you don't have that, so we've printed it in your lesson at the end. All you got to do to get caught up is by next Sunday have the first four verses memorized. Not the first four chapters, Richard. Last week I said the first two verses. He thought I said the first two chapters. He was mad at me all week. Four verses. We'll be on track to have the whole book memorized. Try to get caught up. Let's do it. Next week we're going to study the Didache. It's one of the coolest books I've ever read. I cannot wait for us to talk about it together. Can I pray over you please? Lord, we thank you so much for your love and we thank you so much for your attention. It's fascinating to see, Lord, the way your hand has moved through history and the way you've grown the church to bring us where we are today in humble worship and throughout all history, Lord, all of us, we join in the Christians of all the ages in coming to you united through the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood in whom we pray, amen. Amen. 